The following is a production of Casually Hardcore and Versus the World Productions. www.vtwproductions.com Ladies and gentlemen, do not panic. The casuals have once again seized control of the airwaves. This is an episode of Alpha Geek Interviews, brought to you by Casually Hardcore, vtwproductions.com. <laughs> and there we were at the Phoenix Comic Con. I have with me Georges Gianti. Did I get that correct? That is correct. Comic book artist of much fame and... Mm. Somewhat posterity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking time out of your day to come talk to us. Not at all. My pleasure. I'm glad we could do this. Now, what? But you'll have to speak to my handler next time this happens. Uh, so. See, I hope so. I honestly <laughs> hope so. We were talking about... The first one's a freebie. We were talking about all the good content you know, before we actually got on air, which is how I usually work. So now you're going to be listening to lots of dead air. <laughs> and trying to catch up. Yeah. Well, we, ahead of the uh, interview, we were talking about... Uh, reaching a certain critical mass of popularity where you, by necessity, since there's only one of you, mm. you have to start filtering who you give your time to. And we were lamenting that it was harder and harder to get access to certain people that we used to you know, hang with. So, <laughs> just sour grapes on, on my... used to my, knock my, on our door. Yeah, now. It's, it's amazing how that works, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm not bitter. No, of course not. So you are... Comic book artist, cover artist, uh, quite uh, frequently on a lot of titles. Comic book primarily, but cover covers are more of a luxury in my my line. I know it's, it's odd because uh, a lot of people, a lot of artists, seem to make that their profession, um, which I, I personally never understood. I always thought the idea of comic books was storytelling. The luxury of doing a cover was just. I don't even know if it was really icing on the cake, but it was just something, oh, yeah, no, this is kind of cool. But it's something else that you would do in your mind. I, well, you know what? It's funny. It, it was always sort of, the cover to me were always the advertisement for the content. It wasn't the, this is the, the attention grabber that everybody needs to see and forget about what's on the inside. Well, you look at Golden Age titles, and you know, there was dialogue yeah. on the cover. Oh, and yeah. was there, here's a preview of things that might or might not actually be in the, Back in the, the day. But, yeah. but buy the comic, because it might be this good. <laughs> For some reason, Lois Lane is melting Superman. Mm. Why? Why? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Film at 11, exactly. Yeah, no, that's... that's I, it, it, it's a strange phenomenon now, because I've actually done shows or... Uh, conventions where people ask, how do I become a comic cover artist? <laughs> Which seems like an oxymoron, mm -hmm. really. <laughs> Aren't you just limiting yourself a bit? I mean, You know, it seems to me I, I say that with, with a, a, a sense of irony because honestly, you can make some good money just doing covers. <laughs> well, Three or four covers a month and you probably could make your whole rent and car payment and all that. A lot of the title covers you see are Painted or digitally painted mm -hmm. these days, which you know, doing an entire issue that way is an enormous undertaking. So I can see how sure. someone would do with a skill set of, of painting mm. might make a living only as a cover artist because right. they're right. not you know they're not doing the line art, they're not doing the, the the penciling or the inking. They are a painter, right? Right. So that distinction, but I I tend to like what's on the cover to be a preview of what the art I'm actually art. going to see on the inside. As Which, beautiful as some of those paintings are. Yeah, no, I can, and it's funny because given that, and you're, you're absolutely right, it sort of it in a way says that comics are more mainstream, more and, and I say pop art more in the sense of a, an Andy Warhol pop art, not in the sense of just this is disposable art, mm -hmm. where people really do appreciate and look at the comic medium as more of a respectable um, form of of projection, whatever they, they want to do, instead of just this throwaway little thing you read on the train into the city and never thought of again. Which you know, is, is our humble beginnings. Are in comics in yeah. general? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And there's, I mean, there were comic strips in, you know, periodicals mm -hmm. or, or were you know, the genesis for comic books. Yes. Which in their early days you know, were very much a, here's a cheap 
Yeah, oh no, it was made disposable. Yeah, sure. And in the intervening decades, uh, a lot of people who created the medium got more and more serious about their creation, it seemed. I I think within, it's funny too, because within the last 30 years, maybe, it it has become that. But very much so before that, you know, 60s and, and before. It was just, you know, they were comics, and that's mm-hmm. where we, we gained that stigmatism. They were just, just comics. Kids. Yeah, yeah, and it was just this, the funny books or the papers yeah. and all the little things. Yeah, the funnies. That was that was the thing that you had to shake. Is This isn't the funnies. You know, we're telling stories about you know, death and betrayal, and <laughs> now we are. Well, in 20, when I was trying to break into the business, which was in the early 90s, it still had that... You know, you, obviously we'd had the Superman movie and the Batman movie, and certain things were the exception, not the rule, as are today. They're more the rule, not the exception. Which we are very happy for. We are very happy for. But Plus Phoenix Comic Con. <laughs> exactly. I remember telling people when they were asking, well, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, where do you want to go? What do you want to be? And I was always very staunch. I was very proud in my affirmation of, I want to be a comic book artist, and the first thing always out of their minds was, can you make a living doing that? Is that something? Really? Can you do that? And And your answer should have been better than being an actor. (laughs) Well, (laughs) reliably. The the percentage is higher. (laughs) Hell yeah. That brings me to my question is, when in your life do you remember having that moment of, I want to do this? I, you know, I, it, it was never the question of whether or not I wanted to do this. I think, my solidification in this business came when I realized I could do this. And it was something that I, I thought, well, all right, I'm, I know I'm not great now. And any anybody who loves art and who follows comics can see the rise of a particular artist. You know, you can name anybody you really like and you see their um, ascension in terms of art. And I always thought, okay, I know I'm not the greatest now, but at least I think I'm getting better and more and more as I as I got that and I thought that um, because of course you ask your mother what does this look like she's it's always going to show it over you and of best course work yeah. of art ever so I never really took her opinion <laughs> didn't mean much to feel the love but seek, it was, seek it, elsewhere for your criticism a nice little ego stroke but beyond that it never went anywhere <laughs> <laughs> I get that and afterwards I I realized hey this is this is something I think I can do and. I, you know, I, I started working at a comic shop too for a while, and in doing so, I had access to all these books. And there were a lot of books where I thought, I don't want to get an ego about this, but I'm actually better than this guy. You know, this is something I can actually do. And from there, it, it well, there was the sort of confusion of my college years where I did think I wanted to be an actor and dancer and going to anything that was expressionistic and, and of the arts. I thought that I wanted to do. speaks to an underlying personality there. <laughs> I don't know, and <laughs> modesty prevents me from agreeing with you. But I thought, man, this was something I wanted to do, and I realized I was just, you know, I'm, I'm really good at the art part. And, and in saying that, and it's funny, I was telling somebody this yesterday, in saying that you like to do comics, it's you're more saying that you like to tell stories. And I think what I got good at was telling stories, not necessarily just being a good artist. And you have just hit upon a what has become a recurring theme on our show. And we are talking about the media that we like as consumers. Mm. Over and over again, we come back to we like good storytellers, mm. which is why you know, we are drawn to the Joss Whedons of the world we were talking about earlier, because mm-hmm. he is a damn good storyteller. Very much. And oddly enough, he, he credits a lot of his storytelling from comics. He mm-hmm. loved, he was there. He, I remember having a conversation with him. And he was like, I was so into the whole Phoenix saga back when Clone wasn't was doing it, you know, and yeah, and all of that. And he was like, that really did, obviously, in later years with Willow going dark and all that, you know, that shaped his palette for, I, I think, storytelling into the, the TV medium. Well, I, my reintroduction to comics, because I, you know, as a younger person, collected uh, voraciously. Mm. Pretty much on Marvel side of the universe. Yeah, I was more D- of a DC, Marvel zombie myself. Yeah, DC never really grabbed me, but I was reading through the Claremont era, mm. and a friend of mine gave me the Astonishing X Men first couple of uh, trade collections mm. for Christmas, right after they became available. I said, "Wait, uh, Joss Whedon is writing <laughs> for the freaking X Men." <laughs> 
And that was my gateway drug back into right. collecting it, not as voraciously, just because the budget's not there, <laughs> but getting back into collecting and, and reading and enjoying stories via comic book. And you can tell. Uh, his arc was really an ode to oh my the Claremont burn like, days. Okay, let's see. Here's Colossus back from the mm-hmm. dead. And, of course, Kitty Pride had to be involved. Hello, and, and then, of course, she had to be knifed in the face because it's Joss. <laughs> He's one of the, he and Ronald D. Moore, I've, I've pledged if I ever get to meet them, I will punch Ronald them. Ronald D. Moore, the, the writer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> punch them in the face and then hug them. Uh, yeah, I, I actually came to really like Ron Moore on uh, Star Trek Next Gen. He yeah. wrote some of the more better episodes that I just fell over with. I like him very much because he uh, did a companion podcast to his uh, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, did he? No, okay. So every episode before it released, he would sit down with a little handheld recorder and just do a stream of consciousness oh, good for him. with all kinds of revealing background information about mm-hmm. the process of producing these shows. Yeah. Not know, necessarily like, spoilers, just... Oh, no, he, he went all over the map. Oh. <laughs> he, nothing was sacred. And, but grave wonderful insight into the process of writing and producing a television oh, show. Sweet. It's so much more haphazard than you might think it is. <laughs> but he and Joss both, you know, have because they are merciless storytellers, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've always pledged I will hit them in the face and then <laughs> hug them because they've, they've gotten both of those extremes of emotion out of yeah. me as a consumer of their product. In a weird way, too, I, I was I worked with uh, Jane Espenson. Obviously, mm-hmm. was one of the writers on Buffy, and she came over to write. She consistently uh, makes fantastic stuff. Episode of, uh, or I should say, a series of this, an arc on season eight, and she was very episodes. much, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> she was very much. She treated it. I, I, I admired her treatment of the comics because you still, I still meet people thinking they have the idea that this is something of a. Of, of sort of the redheaded stepchild of publishing, essentially. There's people who don't understand and have no soul <laughs> feel that way. <laughs> and she she didn't. She treated it just like it was a, a teleplay, an, mm-hmm. an episode of something she was doing. And I, I always thanked her for allowing me to be the, the director and the cinematographer and the, the, the wardrobe designer and all of these things. She understood, like, this is what you need to do to make this better. I'm going to do what I do on a normal basis as if I were writing a TV episode, and in this case, Buffy, and then you go ahead and take care of that. I'm not going to, I guess, in a way, dumb it down. And, and I, it, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm thinking my profession or what I do is, is anything less than you know, what Hollywood might think, but I get that stigmatism so much. Yeah, it gets, it, it gets in the craw after a while, I would mm-hmm. think. But the, you know, her treating you like, instead of talking to the different departments, mm-hmm. instead of talking to wardrobe and set design, she just talks she to you as all of those things. And that was a funny thing. Joss said he loved working, well, uh, he said he loved working with me, but I think he loved working so much with comics in that... Uh, we we had a conversation at the beginning. He says, "I don't, you know, I don't really have to." I think it was when I asked him why season eight in comic form. You know, this was something obviously you could have done anywhere and gotten Paramount to uh, back you on it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "All I have to do is deal with you." And in all honesty, I kind of like that. It's just you and me in this thing. Obviously, the editors have a say and, and they come in, but the editors are, are servicing in more of a. Um, um, the moderation, making sure everything goes well and everything is consistent. And, and really it is. Art, comic art is, or comic books are more a relationship between the writer and artist. And these two have to put out this product. And you'll notice um, some of the more better books that you might have liked over the years have probably been a writer-artist who were really good together or a writer who also was an artist who did something and understood what he was doing, like Frank Miller or Walt Simonson, on those books that really gave you that sense of, yeah, this this is something more than just a comic book when you really look at it or read it. Very much in the finished product, uh, it arrives to the to the reader mm. very similarly to 
the television shares. Yeah. If and again, if we're doing our job, because really, you, I've, I'm sure you've sat and seen television episodes where you're like, God, that was really bad. Mm-hmm. But they had, you know, they had 15, 20 people doing it. And you think, well, how can that be so bad? I think we're willing to give ourselves the excuse that if it's bad in comics, it's okay because he's a bad artist or he's a bad storyteller, he's a bad writer. You know that idea that. Since there aren't that many people involved, you can't expect too much from the one person or two people or however many. And, and I personally don't, don't agree with that. I, I very much treat what I do, and I think I can only speculate. That's why Buffy is so popular with me uh, and, and the fans, is that I treat Buffy as if it were not just a comic book, but something that would fit in any other medium. Um, Joss was very bold in saying you know i want season eight to be the the season we could never do on television and thereby saying that i want an unlimited budget i want the effects to be phenomenal you know i want them to go places technically i could never do low earth orbit (laughs) i'm sorry did i say that out loud and you know, strangely enough, he said, "You know, I had the idea of Dawn being a giant back in in season seven. That was something I thought, yeah, we could play with, and it would be interesting because, yeah, there were always the jokes that uh, Michelle Trachtenberg grew exponentially more than uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and so it's it just hiring preteens, <laughs> exactly." So we thought, wouldn't it be funny if she actually did have growing pains to the point of uh, being a giant? Thing. There's the whole budget thing. <laughs> but right, is I could have never done that with uh, with that, and you know, the idea that I would have loved now that Willow was a full fledged witch, you know, and this was all sort of just lovely conversations he and I were having. That Willow was a full fledged witch, you know, I wanted her to fly. She like in the Matrix, she was that. Keanu Reeves character that could go all around and do all that but of course we were so limited in what we could do so that's why and I think a lot of people coming to this book who maybe aren't as familiar with the TV show just think oh Joss Whedon kind of took Buffy and comicized it in a weird way and said now that it's a comic book I can be crazy yeah less less relevant and and really, he's, he was like, no, this is something I would have done had yes. I had the money back then. These are all ideas that were here that the studio would have choked on saying, Exactly. Um, yeah, they could have never. <laughs> this is the number of dollars you right. have. Yeah, you can do that one effect. Put down the pipe, step away from the crack. <laughs> and that's it. So you've got another 38 minutes to fill mm-hmm. for that episode. Have a nice time. <laughs> I've, uh, as a you know, reader of the series, I've, I've very much enjoyed... Uh, just the continuation of the character's stories. And you know, I was able to pick up on the, the developing relationship between uh, Don and Xander. Xander. Uh. And my wife thought I was nuts. I was like, mm. oh, no, no, they're totally setting these two up. <laughs> During the whole you know, thrice-wise transformation. Right. Like, well, you could even see that, really, through uh, season seven, in a weird way. You could see a sort of, you know, a meeting of the minds. They were the ordinary ones. The ordinary ones, who by extraordinary circumstances are being brought together. And you can make it completely believable, you know, even to overcome the you know creepy uncle feelings that someone in Sanders' <laughs> position would feel. And, and it's funny, the, 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 the fans, some of the fans I talk to never, for some reason, don't allow the characters to age. Because, yeah, there's a lot of that that says, he's oh, such a tap pedophile. Dan- <laughs> tap dancing on one of my hot buttons. <laughs> and I keep saying, because I asked Joss, because when I got into it, I didn't know anything about the characters. So I needed specifics. I needed stats. How old was Buffy? How strong is Buffy? How can she do this? And he said, yeah, Dawn at this point is in college. So you would have to reason. She's probably 19, 20 at the mm-hmm. very least. Buffy is maybe 20. 25 at this point if she was you know a few years older than dawn right so how can and if xander is in his late 20s you know he's seeing somebody now who's not that much older or younger than he is but they share this wealth of common experiences that are completely extraordinary sure sure removes them from the pool of regular people in so many ways which and you would think logistically things like that would bring those two characters together for uh, uh, when i was talk to my wife about this is like you know why wouldn't they <laughs> and one of the things i 
hate, and I would describe this as the Star Trek effect, mm. was the massive red reset button they would press <laughs> yes. at the conclusion the of the credits of, of every episode. I mean, they allowed oh, Star Trek, the original series, or the next generation? Next generation to the much larger extent. Right, right. The characters were not allowed to yeah. grow. I mean, there were little, little, little... Insignificant, inches, but right, they well, weren't, and they even retracted on me. I really wanted to shoot some of the writers when they came with Star Trek Generations, and they made a very big deal about the emotional chip in its damaged state, you know, embedding itself in in the, data, in data, yeah. and him being completely incapable of dealing with. I'm like, fantastic! Mm-hmm. The character just grew. He's got something yes. new to deal with. He's consequences from his actions. Mm. Wonderful. <laughs> the next movie. He magically has the ability to just turn the emotion chip right. off. It's like, what the <laughs> hell? No! I always thought to a lesser degree on the TV show that, you know, let's say Picard learned how to play the flute, mm-hmm. and now he has that knowledge within him. It was those little inches they allowed to forward oh, the character. That I love. The little callbacks to one of their best mm. episodes in my yeah. opinion, where you know, he got to live an entire mm-hmm. life and explore aspects of relationships and things he would never do as exactly. a captain. And he got to keep that. And mm-hmm. To me, that was a major part where they didn't just, you know, he forgot it all. And right. Back to being Picard. No. He was fundamentally altered by right. this well, experience. Yeah, the, major, yeah. the major faux pas there was at the end of Star Trek Next Gen, you know, Troy and Worf were having a relationship. Mm-hmm. And then in the film, you're like, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> well, they erased all that with uh, Deep Space Nine. Well, and it's funny. I think Deep Space Nine, after a while, took the opposite because they just said, all right, these characters are going to change so exponentially that you won't even recognize them. And who was working as a writer on DS9? Ronald D. Moore. Was it Moore? (laughs) He was one of the big movers there. And a lot of that that story arc near the end where they actually started having story arcs across seasons, Mm. I blame well, I remember reading on when he was doing Galactica that he wanted to do a lot of that with Star Trek that they, mm-hmm. the company never let him do. He had even grander ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DS9, you know, to me, from a storytelling standpoint, mm-hmm. was a, a, a major seed change for that organization. Right. And then they kind of lost their way and were right back to the big reset button with their something. I think so. Yeah. And I, I shed a tear because uh, when they did Enterprise... Mm-hmm. After they knew they were going to be canceled, they just pulled out all the stops and did all the classic mm-hmm. stuff. They had the Orion slave girls, mm-hmm. and they had the enhanced humans that you know, would lead to Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. And I was pulling my hair out because they were even brought doing in Riker all, and Troy <laughs> at the very end, which made me want to <laughs> stab them in the face with knives. But the all the stuff that had they done that from day one. Mm-hmm. They would have had such a ravenous fan base. Sure, sure. It was almost as if they wanted to say, Star- this is Star Trek, but it's not the Star Trek you know. And, and they wanted to sort of reestablish their own. But they showed that they had it in them at the very end. It's like, you could have been doing well, this. As with anything, oh. yeah. When it's, oh, it's not working? All right, we'll go back to the beginning. Oh, and they did it well. And it, would, and it was you know, yeah. some of the very best episodes were the ones after they knew they were canceled. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but back, we digress. We apparently diverge. <laughs> so, the, is that why you're wearing a goatee? Mm, I am from the <laughs> mirror. mirror room. Room. <laughs> Again, those episodes were some of the very best. <laughs> Reusing or extending, you know, expanding upon old storylines in that way, great storytelling. If you haven't assumed, this is really for geeks. <laughs> oh, really? Whatever was your first clue. If you're a regular listener of Casually Hardcore, you knew what you were getting yourself You've into. You tuned out a couple of minutes ago, obviously. Or you're just foaming at the mouth saying, how wrong I am. So, the Buffyverse, as mm. is generally referred to, that you... Or is it now? See, it's funny. I hear a lot of that, or I hear the Wheatonverse, which will encompass well, all of you operate, but for our you operate within the Buffyverse, I which operate is within a, the a, subset, a sub-dimension of sure. the Wheatonverse. Sure. Um, there was a you see the bit on Robot Chicken where they uh, actually had Joss come in and voice himself. Oh no, really? Because no. <laughs> Seth Green's going from Obviously, person yeah. to person, mm-hmm. looking for a job, basically, or looking for people to Seth Green as a as himself character. Okay, um, voicing you know it's his production, but mm-hmm. he, and they have him sitting in this massive hall with a fire behind him, and saying, "Oh, you wish to participate in my Whedon verse?" And <laughs> wow, you actually call it that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but. It's a you know, it's a universe where I wouldn't mind hanging out for a while. Sure, uh, sure. It's, I've hung out now for three, almost four years, 
and I've had I've had some of the best fun in my life doing these books. So I have no complaints whatsoever. Now the in the comic industry, they've gotten in the habit of offering alternate titles or alternate covers mm. for with every issue in order to increase sales. I assume. Sure. Um, I find myself in the camp of always picking one and sticking with it when I'm collecting a series. And the funny thing about that, and yeah, it's, it's almost as if, oh man, those guys are geniuses. Look, they have the cover that's the sort of comic book and mm-hmm. the one that's more kind of realistic. Mm-hmm. But initially that came out, it was only supposed to be for the first issue really? that we did an alternate cover because we wanted to do, or Dark Horse wanted to do something special. I see all kinds of titles doing the multiple covers. Well, <laughs> you know, and obviously it's no thing back in the 90s where you had foil covers and bossed covers and that covers, all the gimmicky things. But we initially started just saying, hey, this is a special thing. How can we make it even more special? Why don't we just do an alternate cover to commemorate that? And this was a thing... Initially, if you ordered a certain number of books, you got the alternate cover as a result. It was never, you can order two covers and whatever, it didn't matter. You had to order a certain number, and it was more of an incentive, is what it became, essentially. Because I think then, after that, they saw that the sales on the covers, or the sales on the books were good. So they thought, you know what, why don't we just do four of them? For the, uh, it was understood that Joss's arc, the, the first arc, was going to be four issues. And I, all right, for Joss's arc, why don't we just do the alternate covers for that and, and we'll just leave it by the wayside. Maybe we'll do the fifth one. If he writes it, we'll do a sort of fun for It would be an indicator of Joss's in the house. Exactly. And yeah, it just became, it's funny, my, uh, <laughs> my editor looked at me and, and he, he, um, he said, you know, it, it's weird, but I honestly thought that the alternate covers wouldn't be as popular as they are, but they're, they're like, really popular. I mean, they're so popular that it behooves us to actually keep doing it. it. It doesn't cost us all that so, much to produce no, extra books. No, no, no. And then they, after a while, they cut out the incentive of ordering so many of the regular covers to get, get the alternate. Now you could offer, yeah, whichever ones you want. And he thought, it's funny, my editor was then, obviously editors are very cynical and they're, they're pragmatic. They live oh, really? in the real world. They have to say, we deal with numbers, we deal with people, we deal with crunches, all of that. And he thought, seriously, I guess he didn't re- remember who he was talking to. He was like, yeah, when we started offering both covers at, you know, whatever, however you wanted to get them, I honestly expected your covers to go down because, you know, obviously the Joe Chen's ones are so more realistic. And I, I didn't take it personally. I thought, yeah, honestly, I'd, I'd feel the same way. And he's like, but they haven't. That's that's a weird thing. So No, we want it all. <laughs> you know, and I could only assume that, yeah, people enjoyed. And I think enjoyed the covers so much so that they were polar opposites, essentially. I thought if the covers were too familiar or too similar in their in their inceptions that people would be be turned off and then felt they had to choose one or the other. I think people in general, and, and essentially what it's become is that I feel the people who don't necessarily read comics all the time will look at the realistic covers, or the Joe Chen covers, I should say, and say, yeah, that's sort of my preference because this looks a little more realistic. And the people who love comics and read comics sort of understand the comic covers and say, oh, no, that's actually kind of cool. And that's... I've always gone for, without even know, paying that much attention, your covers, just because I've all, to me, the comic has always been, well, I would like a preview of what's inside, please. <laughs> so I've always just reached for your cover. And I've always been just such a, a rabid comic fan that I'm, I'm and not just limited to Buffy, but I'm always looking to do homage because I, I grew up with comics. And of course, you know, what, what is the better, the best compliment to say to something than to make a homage of something you grew up with? It's fun to spot those, by the way. <laughs> well, I do more. I do them so often and, and all the little things in the book. Uh, I'm just a rabbit geek myself. Um, I mean, but the, the throwback to action comics. Uh, the more recent ones, yeah, with with that, yeah, it's just, like, oh, well, and it, it's funny because that when Brad Metzler came on, who you know is a novelist and New York Times bestseller and all that, he's just such a sort of lofty guy. He's just this guy. When we talked, he's like, I just love comics and I love Buffy, man. So I want all of my cover arcs to be homages to all that and he had it all set he knew pretty much what they all should be yeah, or, like or suggested and <laughs> he realized yeah we, we i think we got along really well joss actually even said you know you guys really clicked in in my opinion i i of course don't see it because i look at it 
as as like a working actor will look at a role, you know, this is a good role, and I do this role every week, um, regardless of who's writing it, I'm going to give a hundred percent. But I guess really people do tend to shine and that sort of thing. Well, at, at these cons, you see, you see actors, and we had uh, Keir Delay and Gary Lockwood up here yesterday, mm. and they were talking about great directors and terrible directors mm. and so it's it's not it, it's not as simple as i just do my job right because someone doing their job badly can vastly affect the outcome yeah. through no fault of yours right so it is a wonderful thing you know from a selfish standpoint of me as the <laughs> consumer of your product we'd like it when you guys click because we get a superior right. product and an even better story than it might have been if you'd been at odds no no and I, I i agree because again i think it comes back to storytelling it it if we can all understand and unite in the fact that we are trying to tell stories the best stories we can it's not a situation where well i'm a high profile writer so i'm coming in here and that's going to be the big i'm going to fix the title you know, like, which is, which is the slant now in comics, and I totally understand. And if that's the case, if it's a question between really great art or really great writing, I'm going to favor really great writing, even as an artist, because I do love the idea of storytelling and good storytelling over just really pretty pictures. And see, I, I disagree with you on that, because if I want great writing, I'll read a novel. <laughs> really? I come to graphic novels because I want what the art adds. Well, that's what I'm saying. Whereas if if it's great writing and you get that great art as well, I think it's a happy... Co- well, I don't want to say coincidence because then that suggests it's few and far between. But like with any medium of uh, novels, I'm sure. confluence. Well, with, with novels also, I'm sure you get the idea that oh, some of this is really good and some of it is just really bad. You, you can't know. tell when an author is just phoning it in, especially on, on a serialized uh, title. Exactly. You can see you know, there are copies or there are installments right, that right. shine and others are like wow that was just phoned in and I, I think comics should be a, almost a sense of checks and balances where the writer should be uh, held accountable when the artist says hey I read this and I don't know if this really flows tell me where you're going with this or can you work if, with me yeah if that's the case this might be a better way of doing this sort of thing and, and I think that's what comics have over any other medium well it sounds like you're wearing your cinematographer hat at that point well and, and that's just it yeah you're, you're I, that's why I, I hesitate to call myself a comic artist because you do you get you have to do so much more than just draw you have to understand what the process of storytelling is like what that lighting for that scene might be or you know what those characters really if they're either standing or if they have a prop in their hand or what does that mean and I am to me that is paramount I'm constantly thinking of that when I read a script I'm thinking of what are the characters doing what is that scene trying to say that I can enhance visually that the writer, of course, is entrusting upon me in words, so to bring that out better. See, and I would never have thought of, of comic artists having to worry about blocking a scene. No, and it's funny. I think anybody, I tell people, anybody who wants to become a comic artist, I say, take a, a class in cinematography. You know, this is something you are going, we have, we... Uh, we apply the same rules as movies. You know, we have the fourth wall and we have the, the 180 line. And, you know, there are all these things that apply to comics as well as film that most, unfortunately, most kids just grow up and say, God, I loved Todd McFarlane when I was growing up and I just wanted to draw my version of Spawn. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And that is great. But after that, and essentially I'm going, well, then do a pinup and call it a day but when you're doing comics that is is maybe two three percent of the total whole of what comic books are and you need to find your own voice i mean and eventually right it's okay to be influenced obviously spielberg was influenced by hitchcock but he would you know he's his own director and i think artists do the same thing now you had a particular challenge in coming into do season eight Mm -hmm. in that you weren't merely creating comic book characters you were modeling off of actors real people sure how much does that affect your process which is funny i think the idea that i actually was not into buffy at all when i first accepted the job we fixed that (laughs) i uh, i came in with no real i mean i understood in terms of pop culture who buffy was and what buffy was there was a phenomenon there was that i was not unaware of it but i was never susceptible to it and i think that helped me in a good and bad way because of course i look at those issues now that i drew not having a full knowledge of 
the Buffy lore, thinking, God, I could do this so much better today because I have so much more knowledge. But I also think it alleviated me from any any uh, nervousness of actually drawing something Performance that, anxiety. oh my god, I'm going to get it wrong. Right? It's um, this huge thing. A hundred people are going to tell me, oh, that's not Buffy's nose. I don't know what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is funny because Joss himself s- set me straight right from the get-go because I, I, I kind of told him, you know, once, of, as, a, as an actor or, or a musician or any, anybody who's trying to get a job in a very competitive field, you always want to sell yourself. Even if you don't really know what the product is, you want the job because, of course, getting a job is paramount. And step one, I was, I was, once I got the job, I kind of, I, I had a conversation with Joss and I was like, uh, dude, I'm, you know, between you and me, I love this and I will give you my 100%. Don't get me wrong. But I got to tell you, I don't know that I'm good with the likeness stuff. I've never done it. And I don't know why you picked me because everything else I've done was, you know, either Gambit or, or Superboy or the Green Lantern or something that didn't need any of this well, reference. Those ones you can interpret. And yeah, your and own people interpretation. People won't hold your feet to the fire. Exactly. People like a new interpretation of a beloved character. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as... That doesn't look like Sarah Michelle Geller, damn it. <laughs> right. How dare you? And he set me straight. He's like, look, I'm interest- I'm not interested in Buffy looking like Sarah Michelle Geller. I'm interested in her looking like Buffy. And I thought in a weird way that really clicked. And, of course, he meant that subsequently for all the other characters. Because well, Sarah Michelle is playing Buffy. Exactly. She yeah. is not Buffy. And, and obviously, w- she will go to her grave looking like Buffy the rest of her life. That I, I mean, I'm not ignorant to that fact. But the idea that... Th- in interpreting Buffy in comics, I interpret her more as a character, almost using Michelle, Sarah Michelle, as a guide, not well, necessarily. Well, you didn't turn her brunette or anything exactly. drastic. Yeah. Still <laughs> a blonde, shortish, mm-hmm. you know, very woman. spunky, um, emotionally charged girl. Right. So that it didn't, it doesn't sound like it uh, was an insurmountable or anything you wound up obsessing about, making it, oh, God, it has to look like... I, yeah, I didn't actor. at the beginning. I, the, for the first couple of arcs, I was, I, was, I was happily ignorant to all of that. And once I really you got... shielded from the seething <laughs> mass of humanity that is the Buffy fan base? You no, know, no, no, it's funny. I, I, and I, to this day, will not read a whole lot of reviews because, of course, I think the internet has, has given everyone such super anonymity they can say whatever they want and rightly so but it gives everybody a voice including the douchebags even the voices who really aren't, aren't well thought out in that sense and I, I agree everyone should have their own opinion but I, I don't tend to follow that sort of I thing I think Kevin Smith made an entire movie about that concept <laughs> very true <laughs> the, in the middle of uh, season 8 you were asked to step away from the title for a while because they were doing a crossover with Frey. With Frey, yeah. And Which I totally understood. I think people looked at me and said, "Oh, weren't you pissed off that you know you had to be taken off the book?" And I was like, "No, Carl Merlene actually created Frey with Joss, so it's almost poetic that those two could have come together and again, do, do more of that story." And I always say, "I, I did the the covers. Mm-hmm. I still have done the covers, so it was never a question of I wasn't begging for food. Yeah, <laughs> and I knew I was coming back. I was actually <laughs> grateful for the time off because it allowed me to go <laughs> skip ahead and 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 get caught up on a deadline. Excellent." Um, that was from the reader standpoint. You know, I had started reading season eight mm. before going back and learning about Frey. Frey, right? Because um, I had, you know, that was during the period of time where I was out of comics, right? Um, so it was kind of a weird reversal of, oh, hey, they did this thing that they're referring back to. I better go read that. Exactly. And think, oh, hey, this is kind of wacky and different. <laughs> and okay, time travel it is. <laughs> um, and then they re- they managed to integrate that into the ongoing story arc, mm-hmm. and you know the beautiful thing about this seems to be that you know season eight is season eight, mm-hmm. and it is tracking very much like a season of the television series mm-hmm. where you have some short arcs and you have you know basically episodes mm-hmm. of interesting content with an undercurrent of the big bad and the big bad and this one was kind of in your face from the get go of right. hey twilight right right and i think joss was very adamant about saying in the comics i get to do the b stories that i could have never done on television and that was and where i was heading the episodes are much more expansive mm-hmm. here where the you know he would be curtailed in what he could do by budget and just by you know, the number of hour of minutes you're allowed to have in a, an episode of mm-hmm. television mm-hmm. so we get you know four issue 
extravaganzas right. on these whatever these storylines are, mm-hmm. which would have probably either never been produced, oh yeah, no. or hacked to death to make a forty-five minute episode of TV. Sure, sure. So bring me more like that, please. <laughs> well, I think in, in a good and bad way, it worked for us. In, in the good way, issue five was about the uh, Slayers impersonating Buffy because she's such a figurehead now. You know, she was susceptible to a lot of danger. Well, that you, they you got where fight. I was heading ahead of me, which is the one shots. <laughs> the one shots. And th- I think that's good because Joss actually did that story. That was a throwaway story that... Or, or I should say that was a throwaway line that he had. He said in the first issue of, of Buffy Season 8, mm-hmm. he said there are three girls who are posing as me very publicly. Mm-hmm. One is literally underground. The other is parting it up in in And in that was Europe. just to tie up a loose end from the television and series. And that was from Angel, yeah, the and this, girl in question. This this throwaway line becomes this really great issue of the comic. And, well, it becomes a great issue of the comic because apparently Joss... There was a production assistant or some woman who worked with on Buffy while all that time was going on, and she was extremely ill, and Joss never knew about it. And he, he said he felt so bad that he never really knew the woman, and she was one of those women who kept herself to herself that she never said anything about her illness. She'd recently died, and it really took Joss, he said, by, by you know, emotionally, it hit him. Hearing about it. After the right, fact. that he like could. This he person never who was woman. who was out there for me, right, doing, doing for her me. job and never complaining that she was in pain or doing whatever, and, and I didn't even know. I was he, ignorant he to he that fact. To honor her. And in a weird way, because there's a dedication at the end of that issue that says that, and that's the story behind it. He wanted to show this Slayer as one of those nameless people you never really get to meet, but nonetheless who are out there doing their part and doing what she's supposed to be doing and in typical Buffy fashion saving the world and in typical Buffy fashion definitely so that was how that came about and that's where Joss was very very cool about saying I love doing these little one shot episodes now on the flip side of that I think it some of the one shots kind of deterred us because these books come out every month and unfortunately with a season you get a season over the course of a year books come out over the course of a month you know, you are prolonging season eight by a few years, if that's the case, when you do these one shots. And I think it might have gotten off, off, us off track a little bit. Well, and Joss has such a reputation for delivering his written material on time ahead of schedule well. under budget. <laughs> if only that See, see that? Said with a straight face. <laughs> if only. There was a reason why I didn't follow Frey. Uh, you know, and I keep saying genius is mysterious. You Sometimes you... Uh, I remember Stephen King in his book on writing... He says, I, I don't write, I feel. I invite the muse to come in and I set up a nice little area where he can flourish and then he tells me what the stories are and what I should write. I've heard that uh, sentiment from many writers mm. and I've heard a different sentiment from the writers that I seem to be attracted to. Mm. Um, Tolkien described himself as the historian mm. of Middle-earth. And that the the stories existed. So he was more dictating. Yeah, he was simply writing down mm. the history. Um, and I get that same kind of vibe off of the Joss Whedon's and Ron Moore's of the world. Is right. we have the whole universe in our heads, mm-hmm. and we're just going to give you excerpts that we think are interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other shows that I used to follow was called Farscape oh, on yeah, Sci-Fi. Yeah, yeah, sure. And one of the things I loved about that show was in between episodes, an indeterminate amount of time will have passed. Mm-hmm. From a week to the better part of a year may have passed between episodes. Yeah. And it really gave the vibe of we're only tuning in when the interesting stuff happens. Right. Their lives are not actually this nonstop action-packed series of events. <laughs> Sometimes there's long swathes of absolutely nothing interesting mm. happening, and we're going to ignore those parts, but we're going to acknowledge that they happen. Right. That gives me a, the same kind of feeling that we're just the historians, and we're, right. just, we're taking out the bits that are interesting where the change happened. So I think in a bad way, though, because I, I was really trying to get into Farscape, and I thought Farscape suffered... Because of lack of continuity, it it was it was one of those things you were coming into it, but you're not really knowing where you were at some point and why or what the characters. I guess the the development of the characters as as arcs go, you thought, well, that's strange. You know, just last episode, he didn't know how to do that, and now and he's an expert. They were really trying some different storytelling techniques. Mm-hmm. They were also merciless about axing characters, right, or having them disappear for long periods of time and then return, right, right, with. Right very little explanation mm-hmm. so 
they probably could have been a better done a better job knowing their audience. Yeah, yeah. As far as you know, the typical American television consumer people at this con excluded because mm. we eat that kind of stuff <laughs> of course, up because sure. we are you know we drank the Kool-Aid years ago. Sure, and we know the flavor. Exactly. But you know for the the mass audience that you know it's it's harder for them they want to know where they stand at the beginning of the episode which mm. in extreme cases leads to the big red reset button we were talking about <laughs> earlier where yeah. you can watch episodes of next generation in almost any order mm-hmm. and you get it mm. and because right. almost nothing changes that's the heavily well that was the edict that had to be yeah. a self-contained story and that took to a bit of an extreme now mm. Farscape probably took it to the opposite extreme right. of no you got to watch these in order and you got to be on the ball right. and you got to be paying attention listening to every piece of dialogue right um Somewhere in between the truth lies, I think. Which, yeah, I wish, because I, I did a show with Virginia Hay, and we really just sat and talked, and I was like, God, just on the basis of how genuine you are and how, how open you are, I, I really am trying to get into the show, but I have to say, it just it seemed like a deterrent that the continuity was, was really in, in hacks and whooshes. Now that it's uh, available on things like Netflix Instant View, mm-hmm. and you can, you know, or just get the seasons on DVD. Yeah, that's one of my, my objectives, just to get the whole season, the whole series, and then just watch it. It is well end. served by that format of just sitting mm-hmm. down and watching it. Mm-hmm. That being said, they really don't get their legs under them until, you know, well into the second season. Right, because I've watched it at first going, oh, okay, so this is Buck Rogers. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. All right, we'll go from there. And it just it, it always floored me that he was never really trying to get back home after a while. It was more like, all right, well, I'm hand solo now. Well, what, and what's one of the things that drew me to that character was what would happen to your mind mm. if you were stuck in this situation? Right. And basically, over the course of the series, he goes a little insane. Oh, okay. Not in a violent way, but in a... Caring less about his own safety because of all the crap that right. life keeps it's throwing at him. Surrealistic, like, yeah. No, none of my rules apply. Uh-huh. So he becomes the ultimate. I'm going to go with the flow, right. kind of guy. Right. And that made for some really interesting scenes. Mm. Uh, he gets his feet under him later on because he finds love. Now I have yeah. a reason. Well, who mm. wouldn't? And I have a reason to kind of <laughs> come back in and start taking care of myself because there is a life for me here. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that I can't get home doesn't you know, crush me yeah. anymore. No, I think one of the, the more interesting aspects of that was the whole Jim Hem- Henson Hems- Jim Jim Henson. Henson, uh, involvement in that the creative element of saying we're not going to make all this CGI. This is something we can do. This these are you know we're we're puppeteers. We yeah. can do this sort of thing. And I think you know, part of what turned people off in the early days is they were very obviously Jim Henson creations. Right. And we all have this Muppet gland in our head. Well, and again, and almost like comics. It's saying, well, Muppets are for kids, so I can't take this show seriously. But you look as the show progressed, and they again they got their feet under them, and they mm-hmm. understood what worked and what didn't. Two major characters. In that series, were, were puppets, and it's funny. One I, huge <laughs> one, and one little one. Talking to Virginia, she she said we were never allowed to call them Muppets. No, God, they no. were the oh, and it was a specific name because she said we were fined if mm-hmm. we did, and I forget what the name is, but they had to call it by a specific name. The yep. the the something talents or, yeah, the, or the animatronic like talents, yeah, something. something like that. Oh, and I thought really, she's like, and she was one of those because you think okay, that's a funny well, statement. She's like, no, really. Well, consider if someone says, "Oh, oh, you you draw the funnies," right? <laughs> exactly. That's probably this. You you don't want to be called you know the guy who does the Sunday funnies anymore. Mm-hmm. They want to be called the guy who makes Muppets right. when they're making this robotic monstrosity that is a completely believable, <laughs> emotive character. I feel I understand why they would be sensitive yeah. about that. It's they invest their soul in this creation that completely works. It's like, oh, you do Muppets. <laughs> And it's also great to hear it in an Australian accent. Yeah, she just speaks hurt. so beautifully. And you're like, oh, honey. I love that Just accent. tell her the phone book and exactly. keep talking. <laughs> her and Gigi Edgley. Damn. Just- Gigi, yeah. She's a god. I met her at Dragon Con one year up in the... Uh, the green room and she was just a treat this i mean this was a girl i'm like you know what i would love to go party with you because you seem like you'd be a lot of fun a little bit typecasting there probably you know and i didn't know i, I understood the character but i didn't know the girl and <laughs> sort of getting to know the girl I'm like okay that wasn't it. a stretch with you wasn't <laughs> Not it so much. wow just that makeup was probably annoying oh. because you're like dude i'm already like this you don't have to put anything mm-hmm. on me well, I think you now are to the point where you need to get to your booth. Oh, oh that's a shame. This, this has time. become so... 
There's nothing changing. We cannot pick this up later. <laughs> I just don't want to keep you from. Please, yeah, let me know. I, I, I know I've got a few people who are asking if I was going to be in this right. morning. So. so I don't want to hoard you. As much as I would love to stay, we can come back <laughs> later in the day and pick I up the conversation. I would love to. Always, always willing to talk about comics and sci-fi. Oh, we got so much ground we could cover. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, I know people have questions about Buffy, so I'm always willing. And everybody thinks, oh, you, you probably don't want to talk about it because you have to deal with that every day. And like, no, I actually don't mind. If, if we can get past the What's it like working with Joss Whedon? And the, the typical questions that everybody seems to ask, I'm always... And I, I tell that of any fan who talks to somebody. I'm sure the person you're talking to wouldn't mind speaking of that thing, but just approach it in a way that he doesn't have to give you the same answer he's given a hundred times. See, and I'm here to talk about making comics. Yes, Joss Whedon happens to be... And that's the irony, yeah. Happens <laughs> to be the guy who's feeding it in. Um, you know, If I ever get to talk to Joss Whedon, I'll, I'll interview Joss Whedon. <laughs> then well i've got his number let's see if we can't call him if right only. now <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna interview him by proxy through you because that's a waste of an incredible opportunity so Josh, he said this i'm serious oh my god oh really my god send him the team take him out which is right because he is he's such a he he's a writer i mean and there's some people who are what they are and he really is a writer and in doing so he speaks so well, and he's very witty, and he, he's just his mind is not to the level of, of say, a, a Robin Williams, where it's such a tangent thing, but his mind is so keenly focused but that at the same, he's entertaining. At the same cellular level that you are an artist of the comic variety, he is a writer of wow, the yeah. sci-fi variety. From your lips to God's ears, my friend. If that's the case, I'll take it. Right. <laughs> As the recipient of your output, I can say, just keep doing what you're doing. I, I, you know, and it, it's funny, it's it's more of a love thing. It isn't, uh, well, you know, I get paid very well to do what I do, and therefore I, I have to do it like that's that. That's called a score. And yeah, I, I, it's it is true. I do this for no money, but don't the, let them hear you say that. <laughs> the idea of of being able to do it and know that you are—I mean, I never, I never really thought I was good at anything else. You know, I can play basketball, I can swim, I can play volleyball, but you're capable you know, of those things. Yeah, but these you things don't do them. Yeah, this is where I flourish. I know when I'm doing it that I, I'm doing it well. <laughs> I'm feeling this Mel Brooks History of the World Part One speech coming on. <laughs> well, you you have helped me do what I do, which is this. Because we all love to do it. Come on. I just did it and I'm ready to do it again. Don't tell me you don't like to do it. Damn right. I'm not touching that. I will be in the car. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hopefully we'll be able to get together again before the con is out. Please. Yeah, if you have the time, just ask. Do what we can. I will turn you back over to the 24-7 stream for now. And in, let's see, I believe two and one half hours, we'll begin our coverage of the main hall here with Will Wheaton and Felicia Day talking about The Guild. Will Wheaton? Will Wheaton? I don't got that. Why, why is it? Why, I understand that they make fun of it, but what's the point of making the fun? All I know is some of my student interns would always make fun of it because I was <laughs> talking about setting this stuff up. And the, oh, Will Wheaton? Because <laughs> I know Seth MacFarlane, I'm assuming he had a yes. reason for doing it. I'm just ignorant on the reason. I don't know. It's it's a Stewie thing. And or, yeah, is it just Stewie not being able to do his W's? Or, or Stewie, who is Rex Harrison. Unable <laughs> My to fair talk. lady. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I just work here. So thank you for tuning in, and we will be back in two and a half hours. We are out of here. <laughs>